good to see you all. Um, good to be back in church, and uh, I'm excited to get back into uh, Genesis 1. Uh, just a reminder, um, this is our last uh, Sunday school uh, lesson or Sunday, time of Sunday school for two weeks, okay? So um, we're taking a break, we're giving our teachers a break uh, for two weeks, so there's no Sunday school next week and no Sunday school the following week on the 24th and the 31st. And, um, and then, of course, in January, in the new year, we'll get right back into this. That's the plan. And so, um, uh, so yeah, no Sunday school next week or the week after. So please uh, uh, remember that. Um, what else? I think, that's, I think that's it. We're looking at Genesis 1, uh, chapter, uh, verses uh, 6 through 8 today. We're going to look at day 2 of creation. So uh, before we begin, let's start with prayer. Let's, let's pray together, y'all. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, oh God, how um, the universe reveals your glory, your wisdom, your power, your beauty. We thank you, Father, that um, you have redeemed us and you have given us uh, the beauties of creation. You have given us all good things uh, for life and for our soul. And above all, we thank you for the death and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and so, Father, as we consider the, the words of Holy Scripture in chapter 1 here in Genesis, we pray that you would guide our minds, uh, creating us a humility um, and an awe of your power and your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, G, uh, Genesis 1, so Genesis chapter 1, uh, very beginning of the Bible, uh, we're looking at verses 6 uh, through 8. And God said, let there be an expanse, and so, again, we've already looked at um, God creating light and separating the light from the darkness on day one. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. All right. One thing I, would, I think we would do well uh, for ourselves is to remember here that God is speaking, and he's speaking from heaven. If you think about Psalm 11, what does it say there? It says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The divine word comes forth from heaven. So also the spirit, we saw that, how the spirit was hovering over the the formless mass in the beginning, the earth. Uh, the Word and the Spirit come from heaven. And so Father, Son, and Spirit are revealed here together as the work of the one God in heaven who is the divine architect. He's the divine designer, architect, and builder, creator of all things in heaven and on earth. Uh, Revelation 4.11 says this, You created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So God is exalted above as the God of heaven and earth. Here in this section, we also see a further dividing activity by God. He creates a canopy, the sky, otherwise known as the sky, to separate the waters from above from the waters below. Um, now we should appreciate here that the Bible is using uh, language, and this is something that we always have to keep in mind, especially in our day. Um, the Bible is using language that a normal Israelite at, living at the time would understand. And it's also using language that 
a normal Christian, normal believer also would understand in any generation for us as well, right? So think about this. What do we see when we go outside? When you leave today and you look up, uh, what do you see? Well, from the ground, we see and observe and experience that rain comes down from above, right? It rains from the clouds. It rains from the sky, as it were. And there are waters below in the form of seas and lakes and rivers, etc. Uh, we might think of Psalm 77, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder. That is, that is speaking with language from the perspective of a normal person living on earth. You look up, you see that rain comes down. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. That's Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 11. When we, all, when we look up as well, when we go outside, we see a kind of a dome, right? You, you, you look outside and it looks like we're inside of a, you know, a, a snow globe, right? Like the Christmas snow globes uh, that are popular. It's, it's rounded. It's like a dome. It's a canopy or a firmament, we might call it. This is the sky or the atmosphere. It's also known as the heavens. We might think of Psalm 19. Look how the psalmist uh, goes back and forth between talking about the heavens and the sky. He says, uh, the, the heavens, shamim, which is the word, one of the words that's used here in chapter 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky, rakia, which is the expanse, the word that's used for expanse here, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So the heavens declare the glory, glory of God, the sky above declares his handiwork. So you look up and you see, when we go outside, we look up and we see this seemingly limitless ocean of sky, right, above us. That is what anyone would see when they look up. And that sky would become, at this point, would become the placeholders for the sun, the moon, the stars, the infinite number of galaxies that we've become aware of in recent years. Um, that is where... That is what God is making on day two, the sky, to divide the waters above from the waters uh, below. Calvin uh, understood the waters above. What are these waters above? He understood these waters above to be just clouds. Um, that's uh, one interpretation. Uh, the waters below, of course, are the yet-to-be-gathered waters of the sea. Right? We'll see that on day three, where the waters are gathered together to make uh, the seas and uh, other bodies of water. Um, so waters above, waters below. Uh, we should remember also that this word, when you're thinking about all of this together, right, sometimes you can think, you know, what is all of this? What is happening here? Um, we should remember that this word, Genesis, along with the rest of Torah, right, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, this word came to a people who had lived and been redeemed from slavery in a world that existed after the great flood. And so they knew of a worldwide flood, a, a bursting forth of waters that destroyed every living thing. This is the time in which they lived, after that flood. This is also coming to a people who saw, who witnessed the waters of the Red Sea separated, divided, and caused to be uh, built up into two giant water walls so that they could 
walk on dry land uh, between uh, those bodies of water that were lifted up like giant walls. Um, this is what these people know. This is what they've experienced. This is what they've seen. Um, and this, is, this word is coming to them. During the great flood, um, the baptismal judgment waters, and that's what we could call them, that came upon the earth, uh, we are told that when those waters came upon the earth, we are told that the fountains of the deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened. So waters above, water below, God released the gateways or the gates on those waters and water, um, the entire world was baptized as it were. Um, Notice here that the expanse that's created here, it's mentioned five times over and over again. We're told about this expanse. And notice also how the record of what God did in space and time perfectly corresponds to his speech. This is, in, this is significant in the creation account. This is an account of what God did in space and time. He created the sky, which separated the waters above from the waters below. How did he do this? Well, he spoke it. Let there be an expanse and let it separate from the waters above from the waters below. And so his actions in the world perfectly, or what happened in the world perfectly corresponds to what he said, what he speaks in, uh, in the beginning. And so we have the statement, God made the expanse and separated the waters and it was so. And so this, and these inanimate substances that we call the sky, right, and scientists and astrologers have, over the years have taken a stab at exactly what the sky is made of, right, gases, particles, whatever it may be, but it is something. Um, these inanimate substances so far that we've looked at, light, darkness, sky, waters above, water below, what do they do? They all do God's bidding without hesitation. There's no resistance here, right? There's no rebellion. He doesn't ask their permission. He says it, and it's so, right? Now think about what happens later when the serpent enters the garden, and man has God's word in his ears. What does he do? He rebels. <laughs> he, he doesn't do what the created, these created substances do. He rebels against God's word. He resists God's word. He doubts God's word. Uh, it's an important thing to uh, understand here as we're looking at, um, looking at this account. And so, you know, just taking all of this together, I, I, I hope to give you something from Scripture of what an Israelite might have been thinking as they're reading Genesis 1, right? They're not thinking in terms of modern-day astrology. They're not thinking in terms of uh, knowing or guessing that the sun is uh, 93 million miles away, right? And um, they're not thinking along scientific terms like that. They're thinking like we would think normally. You know, you go outside, you look up, you see a sky, rains come down. Uh, things like that. They also know that God controls the waters. He released his control on the waters to destroy the earth because of the sin of man. And so God is powerful and he's uh, wise and he's good. 
He sustains these things. He sustains all of life. So I'm going to keep that in mind. So I'll stop there. Any questions or thoughts on that? What do you think? No? Everybody good? We keep going? Okay. Well, let's keep going. Uh, and God called the expanse heaven. And so he, he said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters. And he calls the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning uh, the second day. Okay. Well, notice again the emphasis on God as the subject of all the actions. Right? There's lots of things going on here. Uh, lots of activity. Lots of creative activity. Um, we're told that God said he made. We're also told that God separates. He divides. And we're also told that he called or he named, right? And so these actions, making, naming, separating, all, uh, in regard to the, all the elements on day two, along with day one, again, they highlight God's absolute dominion and authority over all of these things. He has absolute dominion over the sky, over the waters, over light and darkness, over day and night, time itself, and all of this before even the sun and the moon exist, before the stars are even put in place. You might think of Isaiah 45, I form light and create darkness. Or Isaiah 50, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. I clothe the heavens with blackness. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't often think about God's activity in the world when I go outside, even as a Christian. Uh, I enjoy the world, but I don't often stop, as we're doing today, and really think about the way in which God is always working, that God sustains the sky. He gives to us the beauty of the heavens. He gives to us the clouds. He withholds the rain in the clouds, and he drops it when he pleases. Um, you know, this is something that is uh, evidently missing uh, in our unbelieving culture, our unbelieving uh, world. Um, and so this is good for us to, to remember. Um, again, we're talking about God's absolute dominion over the clouds, the sky, the, and um, the waters above and below. Again, this would be a repudiation of pagan idol worship, which included the worship in, in uh, the Israelites' day. It included the worship of gods like Ray, the sun god, and Baal, the storm god. Um, but it's also, Genesis 1 is also a repudiation of the creature worship of our day that is relatively prevalent in our, in our, our culture and from uh, science in particular, from the realm of, of science, um, unbelieving science, that is, in our day. What, what do most people think about the universe today? Well, they, they think that the sky is part of a universe made up of mere matter, gases, vapors, particles, whatever it may be. The sky is simply part of a universe made up of matter that just always was just always was there. It's always been this way. And as time progresses, eventually it will burn out. They literally believe that matter will just completely burn out. Man will be long gone. And there will be 
I don't even know what uh, will be after that, but they, that's, that's where we're headed uh, in, their, in their beliefs. Scientists, unbelieving scientists, can observe and report on fascinating aspects of our solar system. So we can learn much from them, from their discoveries, from uh, the Hubble telescopes of the world. And I think there's a new one. Uh, there's a new high-powered telescope. Uh, it's called the James White Telescope, I believe. You can look it up, look up NASA or whatever. Um, and you know, apparently they can peer deeper and deeper into, into outer space, and they come back with some pretty fascinating images. And so there's much we can learn. There's much we can appreciate and, and learn from uh, what, they, uh, what they observe. Uh, but they scramble and they're confused as to how these things came to be and why they work the way they do. If you read unbelieving scientists and unbelieving astrologers and their reports on the sky, the expanse, and what they see uh, in, the, in the depths of the sky and the outer limits of our universe. Uh, they always come up, they always hit up against walls. They're trying to explain why things work the way they do, where they come from. And some of them are quite ridiculous. The, some of their uh, proposals are, are quite, uh, quite foolish. Uh, it's surprising to be how, how foolish some of their proposals are. Uh, one example is um, uh, Stephen Hawking. He's a well-known, or was a well-known astrologist. Um, you may have heard of him. He was the guy who was in a, uh, confined to a wheelchair. He's a quadriplegic, incredibly brilliant mind. Um, I think he, he wrote a book called uh, History of Time, um, or something along those lines. He was a world-renowned physicist and cosmologist, he is known to have stated that he desired to disappear behind the event horizon in a black hole when he dies. And so, uh, for those of you who, I don't know much about black holes, but what I do know is this. Apparently, there's an event horizon, something called an event horizon in a black hole. And, you know, there's uh, theories about what might happen once you cross that horizon, just like if you look out in our world and see the horizon and you imagine, well, what, what might it be like to go farther that way and you know, breach the horizon? And so there's great mystery there. There's great mystery with these black holes. Well, Stephen Hawking, he, he thought that everything would be revealed to him if he could just cross that event horizon. Um, yeah, and so um, I'll tell you, there's some more things I've, I've learned. Uh, I'll, I'll share with them later on, I think when we get to uh, the creation of man. Um, but uh, we have this, again, what, the point I was making with that is this is a repudiation of the unbelief in our day as well. It's a repudiation of um, atheistic, materialistic ideas about where the universe um, came from. And it proves over and over again what Romans 1 says, which says this, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So as brilliant as some of these unbelieving people are, Stephen Hawking included, they are without excuse because when they, the things they observe reveal, as Romans 1 says, God's eternal power and his divine nature. And so...
uh, we would do well as Christians to remember that. that this is the, the universe in which we live continuously reveals God's power and his wisdom. Yeah, uh, Kay, I think you had your hand up. Oh, good, nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, Stephen Hawking was a brilliant, uh, brilliant man, brilliant scientist, but um, not too brilliant, obviously, uh, because he attributed these things to something else altogether rather than the God of the universe, um, which proves, right, what, um, what Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? So the, the least educated Christian who truly believes that these things are true, the least educated Christian among us is wiser than an unbelieving person like uh, Stephen Hawking. And of course, we don't want to be puffed up about these things, but it's nevertheless true. That is true. Um, and so we, we, we do well to remember that. Um, okay, got a f- couple more things. Anything else? Comments? Yeah. Uh, yes, Carolyn. Yeah, yeah, good point. So Carolyn brings up the point that it's interesting to think about the gods of, the different gods of the ancient Near East. They see the power in the sun, the power in storms, um, uh, and they attribute that power to some type of personal being, some type of personal god. Of course, they're made in the, these gods are made in the image of man, right? So they're, they're idols. Uh, you know, why do they do that? Why do they tend towards that? And even today, you might think that with all the materialism and the, uh, uh, that, that's prevalent today in terms of what most unbelieving scientists, cosmologists, you know, astrologists believe, evolutionary theory, all of that, you would think that that personal element would be somewhat gone, right? Um, you know, matter just is, and it just always was, and... Um, uh, but they, they can't get away from it. In their writings, they, they attribute personal aspects to particles and to uh, cells and to animals in nature. Uh, they talk about how uh, uh, cells uh, you know, multiply and grow and, and uh, move and things like this. And so they give them a personal aspect. And you might think about mother nature, right? It's a personal... It's a personal characteristics given to, you know, basically inanimate uh, things. And so they, they can't get away from it. Um, it it's funny, I just, I just found out that um, Richard Dawkins, who's a, a popular atheist in our day, and he's a, a, a devout evolutionist, committed to the theory of evolution. Um, I mean, you have to give him credit. He's, he's very passionate about it. <laughs> um, and, but nevertheless, he's wrong. He is part of a movement to give uh, apes human status, to give apes um, personal rights, human rights. 
uh, to rec- that we might recognize apes as our ancestors and thus human in some level and deserving of, of human rights. Now, <laughs> that is, the, uh, to me, the peak of foolishness. I mean, I, I, even unbelievers, I, I can't imagine that they would look at that and, you know, give their approval. But that, that just, yeah, they can't get away from it. You cannot get away from the truth. And so you're... Uh, um, you're go- always going to have that. It's, going, it's always going to be, if it's not the truth of the gospel, the truth of the scripture, it's always going to be some perversion of it. That's, that's what you're going to get. Yeah, good point. Shara. Oh, what? Go ahead, Shara. I'll, I'll, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yep. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sure. Great question. Uh, I think we're, we're going to talk about that some more. Um, I haven't yet decided when and exactly how. I think I, uh, okay, so the question is, Shara's point, question, or comment is that a lot of Christians, Christian teachers, leaders, uh, Tim Keller was one of them, popular uh, teacher in the PCA, who uh, have adopted a, a kind of theistic evolution or theistic evolutionary theory on, on creation. And so they have, would affirm evolution on, on some of its parts, or most of its parts even, and, just, and would say you know, on the back end that this is how God brought all things into existence and how he gave us you know, what we see today. Um, and so the question is, uh, you know, would it, for me personally, would I consider them false teachers? How are we to regard them? Um, well, first of all, I, I, I don't think that's I don't think that's an um, an adequate stance. So, what's called theistic evolution. I think um, I think that comes from a desire to appease worldly wisdom, and what appears to be uh, a dominant force in the culture that says, we've seen these things, we know they're true, we've adopted this theory, it's virtually provable, it's virtually um, unmistakable, right, that these things are true. They feel the weight of the culture saying that, and and that is true, it's, it's, evolution is assumed in all textbooks. I mean, it's just, it's just flat out assumed that it's true in all its forms. they feel the weight of that cultural pressure. And so as Christian leaders, um, 
I think that what, it, what they're doing is trying to live one foot in both worlds and trying to appease the worldly standards on the one side, but also hang on to Christian standards on the other side. That's just my personal opinion. Look, looking at um, uh, looking at it, you know, from the from the outside, um, uh, you know, can, it, I would have to do more study on each individual teacher to determine if you know if they're just flat out heretics and teaching, you know, very erroneous stuff. Some of those names you mentioned are, I mean, they're quite heretical in a lot of their teaching. N.T. Wright would be one of them. Tim Keller also, he has a ton of problems in his theology. Um, And so it it doesn't surprise me that he would adopt that stance. Um, At the same time, and I'll stop with this, sorry, I'm just um, blabbing on. That's what you get when you you ask questions like this, so. Um, uh, No, I'm kidding. Uh, The last thing is, we do also, though, I mean, we, I, I don't think, and this is what I want to talk about at some other time, um, we don't as Christians also want to completely reject everything that science gives us wholesale as if it's all not true and it's all not beneficial. I think there are elements coming from uh, the observations of even, evolutionary, even evolutionists that can benefit us and that perhaps actually could, on some level, be true as far as they go. Now, um, you know, we're talking about the leap from one species to another. That's, that I, that's obviously gets into some really problematic areas. But um, we don't want to reject science wholesale and say there, there's nothing that can be learned from it. Um, so, you know, as Christians today, I think in this evolutionary culture that we live in, I think it's just patience, you know, let's see where this, how this plays out. Um, even within evolutionary theory, uh, there's lots of skepticism. There's lots of criticism of the, the very, that very theory by other unbelieving biologists and even evolutionists. So it's, it's starting to erode from the inside. Um, so we have to keep that in mind. Yeah, great question, though. Uh, did, was someone else over here had a question? Uh, Elaine? I think it was Elaine. Yeah. Yeah, that's an excellent point. So Elaine brings out the point that coupled with the fact that God's glory is clearly perceived in the things that are made, you have to also understand that men are created to worship and they will worship. And because of that desire to worship something and because of their sin, they form something else besides God to worship. Yeah, so both those, all of, all of that's at play in, in, in the unbelieving world. Yeah, Tom.
Yeah. About a hundred years, yeah. 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 So yeah, good point. So. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. So Tom Tom makes the point that we don't want to make the mistake of trying to conform the Bible to the the modern uh, uh, the modern stance on on archaeology or cosmology, whatever it may be. Um, there's one truth, and whatever is dug up or observed, has, it has to agree with that truth at some point. Yeah. Um, uh, Unha, yes. Reason for that? Yeah, good question. Yeah, so tell me if I'm right, Unha. So the question is there's lots of dividing, separating, and creation is done by way of separating, right? Why? Why does he do it that way? That's a really good question. I think uh, the best thing to do is to look at the rest of Scripture and bring the rest of Scripture to bear on Genesis. What do we have in the rest of Genesis? The most, most of Genesis deals with Abraham and his people, right? Um, that is, the, for the most part, that is what Genesis reveals, is God calling Abraham giving him faith, giving him the sign of circumcision, and then calling his people uh, to be holy. And in that sense, they're called to be separate, right? Separate from unbelieving world. So I think on some level this anticipates the separation of God's people as holy from unholy peoples. That's a possibility. I think it might anticipate that, right? Um, other than that, I'm, I... 
I don't know. I mean, this is how God chose to do it. Um, and there's lot, I think there's lots of questions that go unanswered when you read through this, and they, they think they're going to remain unanswered. So, yeah, a good question. All right, uh, one last thing here. Um, uh, we are told, uh, if you think about Jesus, you know, Jesus calmed the storm. He calmed the waters above. He walked on water. He walked on the waters below. Jesus is this God. He is this God who in the beginning divided the waters through, by means of the sky. Um, we are told in Isaiah that when Jesus comes again, all the hosts of heaven shall rot away and the skies will be rolled up like a scroll. Right? That's what's going to happen when Jesus comes again. This incredible sky that we see that confounds us uh, will be rolled up uh, like a scroll. So it's a profound mystery and a glorious revelation of God's grace that this, this Jesus, who created the sky, he upholds it, and one day he will roll it up, right? The same Jesus died under that sky. He was crucified under the, the waters above and the sky uh, above. It's that Jesus who will come again and uh, redeem his people and is sustaining our faith even uh, today. Again, the normal rhythm of uh, day-to-day work week is reiterated. There was evening, there was morning the second day. Just the normal day two, normal Monday, right, uh, for God. He created the sun and the moon on, on hump day. Um, that's what I tell my kids. So I was like, we can, we can get through. It's hump day. We can get through it. Remember, God created the sun, the moon, and the stars on hump day. So we can, we can do it. Um, all right, any other questions or thoughts? All right. Yes. Uh, oh, sweet. You're good. You're good. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So the question is, you know, Cornelius Van Til came up with presuppositional apologetics. Um, if you're not familiar with that, please come ask me. Uh, it's just a reformed approach to apologetics. The question is, did he develop this apologetics as a response to the unbelieving world and the, the scientism that was becoming more and more prevalent? I think so, yeah, on some level. Um, um, some of the arguments for the existence of God have actually, the, the classical arguments for the existence of God don't, and Van Til's mind didn't really work if you took them to their logical end. Uh, and so he wanted to de- develop um, a better, a, a stronger defense of, of the faith. So that's, that's where he was coming from. Yeah. Yeah, Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. Yeah. So and that was Van Til's point. Everybody approaches everything with a presupposition, right? It's whose, whose presupposition is true, is who dominates, right? It's just the word of God. All right. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, the revelation of the way in which you brought all things into existence. And uh, we thank you how blessed we are to know and to see these things and to have true wisdom uh, about the world in which we live. We pray, Father, that you would continue to um, give us eyes to see and give us that great awe and humility as we look upon your creation and, and, and beyond that as we, as we think about the, the death of Jesus Christ who was there with you in the beginning creating all things. And so do this good work in your people and Father, we pray that you would prepare our hearts for worship now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, two weeks off. We'll see you in 2024, okay?